So next week, we begin our Advent season. We'll have our Advent candle. We'll work through the four candles. and We'll start our Christmas Advent series, which we're entitling, What is in a Name? And we're going to look at the character and nature and ministry of Jesus through the lens of the names that are ascribed to him centuries before his coming in Isaiah 9. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We're going to hopefully, as we go through these familiar seasonal names, come to see Jesus in a fresh way, deeper, more profound way that will make us better followers and worshipers of Him. I'm excited about that. Grateful that the team got the decorations up so early. I heard that the reason why there's snow in November are because people put Christmas decorations up too soon. I read that someplace, so we're happy to do our part, I guess, in that. Today, I'm wrapping up the series we've been doing um, in honor of launching the new campus at Quinsig Village uh, called Welcome to the Journey, and we've used it as an opportunity for us to refresh our understanding of our core ideas about what it means to be a church and how that shapes and drives who we are and uh, I believe have contributed to God doing so much in the eight years that we've been in existence here um, as a church body. And I had the privilege of closing up by talking about the third of three core priorities that we have as a church, and today it's it's about community. Um, And I'm excited about that. Now, you may be asking if you've been a part of this, You know, we've talked about these three priorities, which are worship, generosity, and community. You may be asking yourself, Tom, where did you get those ideas that that's the core practices of Jesus followers? So today, I'm going to review that part first before I get into community. And where we get those ideas are directly from Jesus. He didn't use those words but they come down to us through three commandments that Jesus passed on to us. The Gospels record that Jesus was asked, what is the greatest of all commandments? Many of you know this encounter that he had, and he quoted an Old Testament passage when he said this in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, let's say this together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The first and greatest. That's the best definition of worship you will ever find anywhere. What is worship? What is the actual purpose of our lives? Even those of us that grew up in a tradition that used catechism, the the essential question that you were asked about the chief end of man is rooted in this. What is the chief end of man? To love God, to glorify God, and to enjoy Him forever. This, of course, is the greatest and the first. Everything else we're about flows from a life of worship. But then he goes on and he continues to quote the Old Testament when he says, and the second is like it. That word like in the Greek language, means intrinsically connected to it as though it were part of a greater whole. The idea there being that this commandment 
must exist for the greatest commandment to be true in our lives. The second is like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So in other words, none of us has a right to say that we truly love God with all of our heart if in turn we don't love others the way He loves. And that's generosity, right? In fact, when Jesus was asked by what I think was a skeptic in response to this, who is my neighbor? He answers with the story of the Good Samaritan, the most... um, powerful story of extravagant generosity in all of the Bible. And then he says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. When he's talking about the law and the prophets, what he's referring for the listeners at that time, he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures, what the Hebrew scriptures, what we refer to as the Old Testament. And what he's saying to us as he's passing it forward is that everything that has been revealed in the Old Testament, about who God is, about the life that we are shaped for, and what we are to do, all that Scripture teaches us about the life we're to live, boils down to these two things. Love God above everything, and because of that, you will love your neighbor. The greatest commandment, and the second. And then, Jesus gave a new commandment to his followers in John 17. The very night he was to be taken and would eventually be crucified, he says to his own followers, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. He goes on and he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. Three imperatives, priorities that our Lord called us into. And they are all from first to last about love. I love that. It's all, it was always and has been and continues to be for us all rooted in love. First, love for God with everything that we have. That's worship. And then love for our neighbors. That's generosity. And then Love for one another, that's community. Do you see it? It's why we're shaped by those three things. And we don't mean that it just shows up on our vision statement as something that we think is a noble description. We mean that the Journey Community Church is driven by these three priorities. If you are part of this church, our hope is that you will join us in being followers of Jesus Christ by loving God with all of our heart, with lives of worship, by loving our neighbor with extravagant generosity, and then by being in loving, grace-saturated community by loving one another. That's what we're about. That's what we call you to. We even program around that. We want to make sure everything we do is connected and driven by these three priorities. See? You see how that works? And that's why our vision statement looks like this. Let's say this together. God is building an ethnically diverse, intergenerational family of Christ followers in Worcester committed to loving God, loving one another, and loving our city. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to be part of that church.
Praise God, I think I am. I think God's calling us to a deeper followership, though. So let's now look at this third priority of community. I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack, it's page 772. I'd I'd love for all of you to turn and have uh, the text in front of you because we are going to read it, and then I'm going to back away from it and walk back to it, and we're going to study it in more in-depth. Acts chapter 2, this little description of true spiritual community that we're about to read occurs just after Peter preaches his very first public sermon. The, 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 the small band of followers of Jesus have been in an upper room praying and waiting for the promise of Jesus that the Holy Spirit would come, waiting for that to happen. So the early church began with a launch team of 120 people. That was their launch group. Now for a lot of people, the way they think of as spiritual community, that's already too big. You, you may have actually you know, done that in your past. You're, you're in a church for a while, then it gets too big. I don't know everybody, I'm gonna disappear. For some people, 120 is too big. But that, was, that was the launch of the church. That was the launch team. And then the Holy Spirit comes in power. The the 120 go out into the streets. People from all around the world hear the gospel preached in their language. And we see, verse 41, the result of that. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So on the very first day of the church, it goes from 120 to 3,120. That would really stress our church database. That would keep Daisy busy for a very long time, entering all those connect cards. And for many of us, that would present a real problem with what we think of as spiritual community, because it's way too many people. And yet, we see this beautiful description that is meant to be not only descriptive of the early church, but prescriptive for you and me. Luke is writing as he looks back on this story. Luke was not here, present for these events. He, he joins the story later on and writes from personal experience, but these events he's writing as he's heard them from others. And this is a moment when he steps back from the storyline And there's six times in the book he does this. He steps back from the storyline and he takes a little verbal snapshot so that we can pause and take a look. If this was modern, there might be an actual picture of the group posted on Twitter with a little description that we're about to read. But of course there wasn't that and so he paints a picture with words for us. And in the same way you and I look back at those stories that we tell You know, my kids are going to get to the point where when Vit and I are up at that age, when we're going to tell the same stories all the time over and over again. As you tell stories looking back, you remember them through the lens of how they shaped you. They take on better meaning. You tell them better because you understand the significance. Luke is doing that for us. He's showing us where this community that he has come to love and appreciate 
was birthed. And so we read it with that in mind. So let's read from verse 42 now. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord continued to add to their number daily those who were being saved. So before we take this apart, I want to back up now and tell the story of how spiritual community got to here. And it goes all the way back to the very first book in the Bible, the very first chapter in the very first book in the Bible, where we learn that when we were created, we were actually created for community. In Genesis chapter 1, we read these words. Let's say them together. God said, let us create humankind in our image. And so God created humanity in his own image, male and female. He created them. Within this description, and if we read more fully of life in the garden, we see perfect community that we were created for. We were partly created for a relationship because we bear the image of our Creator. We were created in God's image, and God is a relational being. In fact, in this very verse, we see the first inkling of the fact that God actually exists mystically in community. Scripture reveals that ultimately is the Trinity, that God is one, yet He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How many would love for me to explain that to you today? You're going to be disappointed. It's one of those mysteries. There's no analogy that perfectly explains this, but Scripture teaches it nonetheless. And it's important that we get it so that we understand our nature. Look at what it says. God said, let us create. Not talking to the angels, only God creates. And then it says, God created in His. And so we see this first image of a God who somehow exists in community, yet is one God. We know that the Son, Jesus, was part of creation because John in his gospel fills in the story in his first chapter when his opening words were, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, And he says two things right off about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. That Greek word means face to face. So Jesus, the Son, before anything was made, was in relationship with his Father face to face. First thing, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Second thing, and the Word was God. So we see this community and yet one God. And then the Spirit is is spoken of 
in the creation account because it was the Spirit that moved upon the face of the deep and joined the Father in creation. So the Trinity is an important doctrine to the church, but it also helps us understand why we were created for community because God created us to join Him in that community. We were created to have fellowship and intimacy with God, but also with a need for community with one another. And that's what the garden represents, a place where man walked intimately with God and where mankind was innocent and unashamed together with one another. We were all made for that. And then sin enters the world through our disobedience. And those relationships were shattered. Our relationship with God is broken because of sin. You've heard me quote Isaiah 59 too because it's the most picturesque description of our fallen state in terms of our relationship with God when he says, your sins have put a separation between you and me. Your iniquities have caused me to turn my face from you. So our relationship with God is broken because of sin and our relationship with one another. Look at what happens immediately after the fall. Innocence and transparency is replaced by hiding from one another, by shame, and eventually by blaming each other for the condition. And that is the basis for all human relationships since. And that's why neighbors don't get along and races hate each other, and Yankees and Red Sox fans don't get along, and marriages fail, and churches fall apart, because we are broken relationally. Fortunately, God had a plan, and it's the gospel. Christ entered the world. That word, John goes on, says, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. That's what we're about to celebrate as we come in to the Advent and Christmas season. And the cross of Jesus Christ creates a new humanity, a new community. This is how Peter refers to the new community. Christ himself is our peace. His purpose was to create one new humanity through the cross. So I want to be very clear. When Christ died on the cross, we have so individualized the idea of the gospel that we say Christ died for me, and I now have a personal relationship with him. And if you think that's the only thing that the gospel's about, then you don't get it. Because Christ died for a people. He died to create a bride for himself. It is not true that Christ just died for you. And when you sentimentalize it that way, you miss out on the majesty of the gospel, which was to create a new humanity that you and I are a part of because of the cross. See? We, we belong to that. That's what the gospel was. Did. It restored not only our relationship with God, but our relationship with one another. Paul would go on to church at Corinth and say that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who, listen to the word, 
reconciled us to himself. And now he's given us that same work of reconciliation with others. That language is all about relationship and community, which is at the heart of the redemptive work of the cross. You see that? We are a people because of the cross. We can once again experience, in spite of our brokenness, because of God's grace, community with our Heavenly Father and be a part of a magnificent community that is shaped around His work of the cross. Now, you may remember in the first part of the year we did a series called Holy Habits and we taught about the importance of community then again. And there were a couple of diagrams we put together for that sermon. And I want to show them to you again because they represent how some of us think of our relationship to church. This is a picture of, uh, let it represent you before you came to Jesus, right? We're, we live our lives outside of, you know, from inside our body looking out, our senses, our experience, and then our lives are shaped by these different arenas of concern, our relationships, family, our future, our our friends, our hobbies, our, our career, even for many of us, religion is a part of our life because we're hungry to know the mysteries. And then at some point we realize what's really missing is Jesus at the center of it all. And so we invite Jesus into our life. We invite him to come and, and bring meaning to everything. And along with that, for many of us, comes church. because That's where we find Jesus. Somebody invites us to something that's church, and now that becomes another one of our circles, another option for us to choose from. And it competes with family and our dreams and our plans for the future and working for our retirement and our other friendships and the activities and hobbies that we love to go and do and we'll spend our weekends and many thousands of dollars doing, you know, and then our, the demands of our career, which sucks up everything we'll give it, most of our careers. And church becomes one of those things that competes for our time. But that is not what Jesus died for. That's not the life he intended. This is the life Jesus died for. He died so that we might be birthed anew into life with him and into this new community of faith that is meant to be the center point, the grounding point for our life. We're family, first above all. This is how Peter puts it. There it is. There's Peter's verse, let's say it. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, it's the mercy of God in all of our lives that makes us desperately in need of each other and intimately connected and capable of a level of relationship that the world and every other arena in your life can only look at and marvel at and long for. That's what Christ made possible and calls us to. And that leads us to this big idea. 
And that is that everything you are as a Christian flows out of your relationship with Christ and His people. Just take a minute and take that in. Maybe you've never thought of it that way, but take a minute and orient yourself around that idea. Everything you are as a Christian flows out of your relationship with Christ and His people. We need each other. We are called to be with each other. I don't care what your personality type is. (laughs) You need the people of God. You may be an introvert or an extrovert. You, You may be a loner. You may be a social butterfly. But we all are intrinsically connected to one another because of Jesus, and he has made it in such a way that we are incomplete without each other. I have a tremendous capacity to spend time alone. In fact, I need time alone. You you think of me as a very social person, and I am. There's a part of me that's that way. I I love people. But I, I get tired, and I need to spend time alone. I think Vit has often worried about me with all the time I, I, I can just be alone. And she'll, she's asked me, what do you do with all your time? And my answer is, not much. Maybe that's a guy thing, I don't know. I, I can go into neutral. <laughs> yes, uh, my nothing box, there you go. Yeah, that's a, that is a guy thing, yeah. But for me, it's... It's become an early morning habit. I, I wake up usually before sunrise now, um, and I'm, I'm often the first up. I make coffee. I go sit in the, the leather chair in the living room, and I'm just there. And I, I, it's become very precious time. Ask me what I do. Not much. <laughs> I have, I, I'll often have the Bible open. I'll be kind of lecto divino kind of reading of, of the Bible. I don't journal. I'm not doing an intensive Bible study. I don't have my prayer list in front of me. I'm just, I don't know. I, I try to call, let's call it ruminating. Make it sound meaningful. I'm, I'm ruminating. I'm resetting. That's a good word for it. I'm resetting. I'm just kind of taking in. And, and then I, I head out. But if I stayed in that place, I would be a very sad person. I'd be a, a pretty depressed down person because we need both. As, as much as that is a part of me, I'm desperately in need of you and my wife, who I'm so grateful for, who always has plenty to talk about when I'm ready, and our kids. See, we're all wired for that. And you may say, no, not me, Tom. I'm perfectly fine on my own. Not me, Tom. I don't need it. <laughs> I'm just saying, here's my answer to you. You lack imagination. You lack an understanding of who you're meant to be, which cannot possibly who you are right now all by yourself. Period. You're settling for less than what Jesus died for in your life because you're not part of something that calls you to be better and that brings to you things that you lack on your own. We de- we're desperate for each other. Everything you are as a Christian flows out of your relationship with Christ and his people. And that's why when we turn once again to this passage that we started in, we see this very powerful word about their fellowship, and that is the word devoted 
We are called to be devoted to this community. Let's put that slide up now and say this one more time. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe. We see this further explained as he fleshes it out for us in the verses that we read. But when we look at this, we see four or five aspects of this glorious community of the kingdom of God, of the people of God. But it's something we are called to be devoted to. Let me just ask you a question. What does it mean for you to be devoted to something? It's certainly not just what you verbalize, right? It's where you really spend your time, put your focus, give your energy and your resources to, right? Those are the things that you're really devoted to. The things you're devoted to are the things that are at the top of the list that don't get compromised when life pushes in. Other things fall away than the things you're devoted to. Otherwise, you're not actually devoted to them. It's just lip service. That's the type of commitment that God calls us to in terms of the people of God, to be devoted to it. And then he describes these glorious aspects of that community. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The Greek word there is the word for doctrine, didache. And it, it literally means the doctrine or scriptural teaching of the apostles. And this is a very important thing for us to understand. True spiritual community has to be grounded in the word of God at the heart of which is the gospel. Because without the gospel, the type of community that we're called to will fall apart. We're not capable of that if it's not for grace to live in this level of intimacy. Now, over the centuries, different factions of the church have tried to seek unity by putting aside the word of God and putting aside the gospel. Because it was the thing that was the most controversial and offensive to people. In the last century, it was known as the ecumenical movement, and mainline Christian churches bought into this idea that we're going to seek unity by forgetting those controversial things, because they offend people. We're going to put aside sin and the cross and grace, this unique message of the cross, so that we can just get along. You see the difference? That might be a form of unity, but it's not community. And it's no longer the people of God when we walk away from the cross. If we're going to really be a place of community, the cross will always be central, and God's word will drive our lives and our fellowship together. That's why we're so committed to preaching and teaching the word of God and then to living by it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The second word is the fellowship. That's the Greek word koinonia. It's the word that came to be claimed by the church as their life together with one another. And we see a description of that koinonia as we go down through this passage. Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. What you see in this community, first of all, is this shared life. 
They shared their resources. Some would read this passage and say, well, that sounds like a commune. In fact, I know people my age who during the Jesus People movement of the hippie era tried that out. Living in, anybody here, were you in a Jesus commune? Anybody? No? <laughs> Close? Kind of living together, sharing the resources. This is not describing a commune because they lived in homes. They, they, they fellowshiped in each other's homes. Some would see this as a cause to justify the political system, communism, sort of forced joint. This is not a, a political commentary on that, but that's false use of this passage too. This is not a commune, and it's not a description of communism. It's a description of community, which means you are family, and so what's mine is yours. If you're in need, my stuff is available to you because it's not my stuff anyway. It's all God's stuff. And if you need to be blessed with it, I'm going to bless you with it. The different ways you as a congregation respond to people's needs. It's, it's glorious. It's one of the reasons I love being a part of this church is because you are generous with what isn't yours after all but you know is God's. They shared those things. And then they broke bread together. One of the secrets of being a church where thousands were added on a daily basis, but yet they had this community, was that they didn't just meet all together. They met in each other's homes where they broke bread and they shared with one another. That's one of the key ingredients. That's why we have life groups as a church. It's not because we think it's a clever programming gimmick or because it's, it's one way we've, we found out people grow churches. We do life groups because we think we're going back to the initial model for the church where true community is found. Life groups is getting in homes, the, the third area, breaking bread together, doing life together. I love bread. Curse you, keto diet. It works. But Jesus used bread as the stuff of life. There's nothing more intimate you can do than to break bread together in that midst. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Now, by default, we tend to fall back on the idea of prayer being us bringing our needs to God, like it's heaven's hotline, right? There's some service department up there, a group of angels. We pass it on to God. He delegates, and we get our needs met. But prayer, first and foremost, is relationship. Our Lord taught us to pray, beginning our Father in heaven. And so when this describes these people being devoted to prayer, what he's saying is these people were in communion with one another and with God together. They were in this intimate relationship with God, which is the picture that we saw in Genesis 1 that we were created for. No wonder, as a result, they were filled with awe, and God did miraculous things in their midst. I believe you can gauge the level of spiritual, true spiritual community in the church based on what God is doing supernaturally in that community. Because when that community is found and God moves in the hearts of his people through the midst of that community, God does things that make people stand back in awe 
through that body. And that's why it says at the end, they had favor with all the people. And the Lord continued to add to their number. It's important that you see that it doesn't say they had favor with the government or the religious leaders. This isn't contradicting what Jesus said when he said the world will hate you, put you in prison, and take your life because of me. Note who it is that they found favor with. It wasn't the government. It was the people. It doesn't matter what environment the church has existed, whether it has to go underground, whether people are in prison for their faith or they gather freely as we do. It doesn't matter where true community occurs. People want in. They look at them and they say, behold how they love one another. And they want in. And so community becomes not just an end in itself, but becomes a way the kingdom grows. Yeah. That's the church we want to be a part of, right? And so let's remind ourselves of this as we come into the end of this year, into the next year. And let's commit our, let's be devoted more fully to this calling. Put up that purpose statement again, that vision, that we would be a group that looks like heaven, welcoming all people from all backgrounds. And that as we follow Jesus, we will be devoted to worship, loving God with all of our hearts together, to generosity, sharing that love with the city around us, and to loving each other. Amen. Let's pray together.